So we're working through this series in Colossians. And I think that this particular section, you could, well, you can say it again and again through this book. It's not a particularly long book. But again and again, you come to words which are absolutely astounding. And because we tend to try to move book through books relatively quickly, you're also aware that what is contained in these words you could come back to and come back to and come back to and you would never reach the bottom of the treasure trove which is these words and and so i pray that god will help us truly as we have just prayed that god will help us to gather something um, from this little section it's headed spiritual fullness in christ so it seems to me as though it's the most talked about movie this year. I haven't seen it, so there's no, there aren't going to be any spoilers. But Joker is apparently breathtaking. It has been uh, starred from one star to five stars, depending on how people engage with the content uh, of the film. I desperately want to see it. It sounds incredible. Joaquin Phoenix, well, he, he, is he nominated? If he isn't nominated, he will be nominated. If he is nominated, he's in a real good chance of getting an Oscar for it by all accounts. One of the writers describes it like this. It weaves a deceptively simple tale about a sad, mentally ill clown who is cast out by society and finds a taste for violent retribution. That's interesting. I think, and probably like lots of our openings, we start to just dig a little bit below the surface of that, and it seems to me as though what happens for Joker is there is a moment, whatever brings it about, where the mask slips and the reality comes out. Interestingly, I think the very premise of the film is rooted in a long history of the interesting relationship between the kind of fun and joy of clowns and the tragedy that sits behind. It's interesting, it goes all the way back to 16th, 17th century, 17th century, and you have probably heard of Pyrrho, the clown which has a makeup tear. There's a brilliant advertising photo for Joker where he's looking into the mirror and written on the mirror in lipstick put on a happy face and it captures really that idea of what we want to portray what he desperately wants to portray and yet there is a reality just like Pyrrho the sad clown pining for the love of Columbine who usually breaks his heart and leaves him for Harlequin. All the way back there, that same tragic story of a face, a front of hope, and yet a broken reality behind. Tears behind the smile. I think what that points to is something which we all know, which we all experience, which is that we all put masks on. 
We all do. We put masks on to the closest people that we most trust. We still put masks on. I think one of the best ways to describe this is one of the little uh, illustrations that's used in Christianity Explored. I want you to imagine that contained in a book, a notebook, is all of the experiences of my life written out. But not just the experiences, but the attitudes and the motivations and the secret thoughts that went on behind those events, experiences, reactions and responses. The deep reality of what it is to be Paul Howell. I wonder whether it might be helpful for us in our minds now to construct our own notebooks of our lives. And then pull the pages apart, if you would, and paste them up on the wall facing. So that every one of us might be able to read those very attitudes and responses and emotions the things that are really going on deep inside. I'll tell you now, if my life was laid out like that, for you to read, I would not be here. Because I would be deeply ashamed of the reality. And I suspect for all of us, if we were truly honest, the reality of our experience of ourselves compared to the mask that we give for everybody else to experience of us is a very, very different thing. So here's the question. In, in this age which is clamoring after the best version of me, are we not constructing our own masks, the best version of me mask, where the reality is remarkably different. And if the reality is remarkably different, what can we do about it? Is there a way that we can lose those masks? Is that possible? That's the question that I want to ask us today. Is it possible to have a true best version of me? Or if you like, a true life? I think that this little passage breaks into that and it addresses four points that I'm going to pick up on. It addresses all sorts of points, but I'm going to pick up on four and recognize how we might see a true life for ourselves. The first thing that we see is that a true life is in Christ. Look at how it opens up in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. 
The first thing that we see in that is the hope of the true me, the real me, is not actually me. It's Christ. Our life in Him. Rather than me creating the very best version of me that I might portray to you. But Paul also speaks to this church in Colossae. And he says this, he he points to this, he says, there is a moment when you received this, you received this Jesus Christ. Now having received this Jesus Christ, go on and live in Him. It seems to me as though what he's saying is this, that a true life, a real life, is not just being aware of Jesus, Not being aware of this Christ, but actually placing ourselves in Him and living our lives in Him. A life which then is built up and strengthened from outside of us. Do you see how that works? When we place our life in Him, It then goes on to say that we are strengthened in our faith. Our faith becomes strengthened when we place our life in Him. Most of us, I think, think that we have to build up our faith. We have to strive and construct and fight to build up this faith. And yet it seems to me that the act of placing ourselves in Him is also the hope of Him strengthening our faith. Rather than us saying, right, Monday morning, now it's time to build up my faith. Completely different to everything that we see in in our, our world's perspective where we've got to build ourselves up, where we've got to strengthen ourselves, where we've got to project the very best me. Do you get tired of that? Are you weary of that constant drain of having to build up the best me? Paul says, place yourself in Jesus Christ. If you like, lean into Him. Place your hope in Him Accept that you can never, never build up your faith in your own strength and say, please build up my faith. Please strengthen me. Because I can't do it. I can't do this alone. I can't build up my own strength. Strengthening is through faith in Him. And that wells up with overflowing thankfulness. I think that the more time goes on with understanding what faith is, the reality of what faith in Jesus is and how undeserving we are of that hope in Him, what He has done to forge our hope in Him, what He has achieved For me, it just seems as though the more time goes on, the more 
there is a growing sense of unworthiness which does not end in defeat. It ends up in thankfulness. Thankfulness for what He has done. That's at least, isn't it, the beginnings of at least before God being able to say, you know me. You know the masks that I put up in front of everybody else. You know the person that I, can, I construct in the hope that everybody else would look at this version of me. But I know that you know the reality of me. And when you know the reality of me, I can still, because I am in Jesus Christ, I can still look at you. I can still look towards you. There is a sense in which the shame that I should feel has been resolved. So that's the first thing that we see. Our true life is in Christ. The second thing that we see, and I think it is probably as important as in the first century, is this. Our hope in Christ is not a mystical spirituality. It's not a mystical spirituality. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. <laughs> that, that's quite a handful, isn't it? That sentence. What he's saying is basically this. I know where you live. And I know what it's like. And there is every possibility that you, that you will start to embrace a mystical spirituality which replaces your hope in Jesus. That's what Paul says. And the reason is because he's writing to uh, Christians in Colossae in the first century. And in the first century in Colossae, there was a strange mix of Judaism and kind of spirituality and Gnostic faith and paganism. And that mix had created an angel cult. And that angel cult venerated the archangel Michael with the belief that in Colossae, he caused a break in the ground and holy water gushed out. So there is this thing going on in Colossae which says that because of this beautiful spring of water which is breaking out here, it is because of the archangel Michael and this holy water has healing properties and all the rest of it. And there is, a, there is a danger, isn't there, in first century Colossae, as there is today, that we can replace the idea of the, the, the truth of Jesus with a mystical spirituality, with the forces, spiritual forces of this world. I'm, I'm going to try to remember the... Uh, was it wind and fire and earth and there's, and there's four anyway. That's what was going on in the first century. 1100 years later, Byzantine Empire was coming to an end. 
But by then they had built the Holy Church of St. Michael. And one of the most precious things in the Holy Church of St. Michael was the healing properties of the holy waters. Isn't it fascinating that we have such a tendency to want to swap the simplicity of the gospel with some sort of mystical spirituality as though the simple idea of Jesus isn't good enough for us. And we want to add something else, a kind of a spirituality that seems bigger and better and greater than Jesus. I want to make this really simple call upon you. We all need to be very, very careful that we are not being as a synchronistic, 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 that we are not synchronizing, bringing together ideas of the Bible with a kind of common spiritual idea that's going on in our generation, in the, in the days that we now live. If it was dangerous for the Colossians in the first century, it's dangerous for us today. Why is it dangerous? Because what we're doing is we're replacing the simplicity of Jesus Christ with something that seems way more appealing. Something that seems more powerful. Something that seems to engage more in the possibility of hope than the simplicity of Jesus. It's fascinating, I think, that these words that Paul wrote to the Colossians way back, way back then, first century, are just as relevant to us today. So what is that simplicity. True life is in Christ. It is not a mystical spirituality. True life is this. This is the simplicity that Paul lays out. He says true life is God present, dead, and raised. That's what he says. If, if, we're, if we're in danger of replacing the beauty and the importance of Jesus Christ, let's remind ourselves of the simplicity of Jesus Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How big a spirituality do you want? (laughs) Do you see that? They're kind of getting excited about holy waters and the archangel Michael. And Paul says... The reality is, in Jesus, is all of God present with us. (laughs) How big a spirituality is that? You can't get a bigger spirituality than that. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. The masks that we put up are our desperate desires to create a better us because we are actually not the complete us. And Paul says, in Jesus Christ, you are made full. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him, 
you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now that's a mouthful. What is he saying? He's saying simply this. In Jesus Christ, you were not circumcised. But you were circumcised not by human hands. Why is he bringing up circumcision at this point? Because he knows where they are in Colossae. And he knows that there is a Jewish influence. And he's trying to recognize that there is an understanding of the God of the Jews, historically, the God of the Old Testament, but he's saying, I know the God of the Old Testament. I know the God of the Old Testament shut you out. You couldn't be part of it because you didn't bear the mark of circumcision which said that you were part of it. But when Jesus arrived, you became part of that. That history, that hope, that God. The one who had been the unknown, unseen God. The one whose name we wouldn't even dare to use. In Jesus Christ, because in Him is all the fullness of the deity, He opens the door for you to be part of something circumcised but not by human hands. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Here's the spirituality that matters. Here's the belonging that matters. What, what Paul is saying is, do you understand that the circumcision that you have is a spiritual circumcision. You couldn't do it yourselves. You couldn't belong yourselves. In fact, you knew that you were shut out from all of that. But the spirituality which doesn't revolve around human traditions and breaks in the ground and holy waters and all of that kind of stuff that you are surrounded by, the spirituality that really matters is the spiritual God present in Jesus and He draws you into something, into a sense of belonging that you couldn't have had without Him. Pretty much everything about our human identity, identity revolves around the idea of belonging. Belonging to something. We have deep within us a desire to belong to something, to feel connected. In fact, the genius, it seems to me, although I haven't seen it, but the way it's portrayed, the genius in the Joker film 
is precisely what is described. Somebody who is cast out by society finds a taste for violent retribution. The casting out, the not belonging, becomes a point of anger. Because why? Because we all want to belong to something. The election that has been called is pretty much based on an argument. Where do we belong? Do we belong in the bigger Europe or do we belong in the smaller Great Britain? Which is our priority? Which is the thing that matters the most? I'm not arguing for one side or the other, not at all. I'm pointing out that once again, our sense of belonging is critical to our identity. Which team you follow. Which music you listen to. Which tribe you associate with. Which sense of belonging which you hold on to. Which you will hold on to until the day that you die. That sense of this is who I am. I saw somebody had put something about uh, inevitably being a Liverpool fan and noticed it. Somebody had put on their... Uh, on, on the internet, something about the, the deep sense of belonging, which is all about being in the cup. I understand that. Kind of. But isn't belonging so temporary? And what Paul opens up here is in Jesus, there is the hope of an eternal belonging. A a belonging which is worked out through His his death, actually. You are circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. We saw it last week, didn't we? We're buried in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God. Who raised Him from the dead. Do we have a hope? Do we have a hope? Is there a hope? Is there a hope that lasts beyond the grave? How do we know? How can we answer that question? Who's got the authority to say there is hope or there isn't hope? Paul makes the single claim, the single claim, that the hope that we have beyond the grave is rooted in the Jesus who rose from the grave. It's as simple as that. The hope that we have beyond the grave is in the Jesus that rose from the grave. And by placing us in Him, we die, we bury, we're buried, and we rise again. Do you know if you believe in Jesus today? It's as though you are already risen and in eternity. Kind of. It's that secure. There is that much hope. You are already raised and in eternity. It's just that we haven't fully seen it yet. Do you know what? That hope is beyond anything that we can find in this world. And it is not a mystical spirituality. It is rooted 
in the divine presence of Jesus. So true life is the God present, dead and raised. And therefore, true life is a life. See the way Paul, Paul now switches it around in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. <laughs> you thought you were alive, but you were actually dead. You were dead. In terms of your relationship with God, you were dead. You were walking around, but you were the living dead. And in Jesus Christ, He's made you alive. You are alive with Christ. These are some of the most amazing verses, words in the whole of the Bible. He forgave us all our sins. You know that wall of the reality of me or the reality of you? The reason that I, that the reason that I do not have to have a mask before God is because He has forgiven me for those very sins that are written up on the wall. And that is what the offer of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is. The very things that separate us, the very things that we would want to hide from God, and yet we know He knows are the very things that He has forgiven us of. Having cancelled, this is a great bit. The Bible is filled, I think, particularly, yeah, parts of Paul's letters are filled with kind of real technical argument coupled with beautiful pictures. Look at what he says next. Having cancelled the charge of your legal indebtedness. What does that mean? He's basically saying, do you understand that you, are le you were legally indebted before God? You were, if you like, stood in the dark and the jury had already pronounced its verdict. You were indebted. But, He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. So on the one hand, you've got this kind of legal status, you're indebted, and then he point, paints this beautiful picture that says, all of that indebtedness, let's now carry it to the cross, and it's nailed to the cross. Let's go and see where it's nailed. It's nailed in that Jesus of Nazareth who was nailed to a cross who poured out His blood, whose body was broken, that's where my indebtedness is nailed. That is the genius. The beyond human comprehension genius of the message of the Gospel. That God is able to hold the indebtedness that is our responsibility with His ability to be grace-filled and neither are destroyed. He says, you are indebted, but I'll take that and I'll nail it to the cross. It's so vivid, isn't it? He's not, Paul doesn't say, now let me explain, having 
proved that you are legally indebted. Now, now let me explain technically how that is resolved. He says, let me paint a picture for you. Let's take that indebtedness and let's see that it's nailed. Those nails that nailed Jesus to the cross are pinning my indebtedness to the cross. Where's the cross now? It's gone. It's disappeared. Jesus is no longer on it. It's, it's finished. My indebtedness has gone. It's nailed to the cross and wherever those bits of wood have dissolved into nothingness is precisely where my indebtedness now is. Gone. Transformed to being alive in Jesus. I was dead and I didn't realize it. I now realize that I died and I now realize that I live. Isn't that amazing? Our debt is paid. Victory is won. What kind of victory is it? He made a public spectacle by disarming powers and authorities. What is holding us captive in our sin? Is the accuser is able to say before God, you cannot accept this one, this human being who bears your image. You can't accept this human being who bears your image. You see, you can't accept him because he's guilty. He's a sinner. He's a waster. He's a rebel against you. And therefore, that image bearer that you've created, you can't have him because you're too just. And that, before God, is true. (laughs) That accusation is true. And yet God says, I am going to make a spectacle of that prosecution claim. And the spectacle I am going to make is by publicly displaying how I resolve it. I'm going to nail my son to the cross. How public do you want it? That's how I deal with your impertinent claims that I cannot resolve the guilt of human beings. Victory is won. Because I triumphed over you, where? At the cross. That's where it happened. That's where it all goes on. That's where it's resolved. What does this mean? It quite simply means this. I have the possibility in Jesus Christ of no masks me before God. No masks. Do you know what? I will carry on wearing the masks before everybody around me in this world. Because the real me is just too grotesque to show. But I know that God knows it as well, but I don't need masks there. I am indebted, but I am redeemed. 
I am guilty, but I am proclaimed innocent. I am broken, but I am made whole. Piero. Tears behind the mask. Do you know what the gospel does? It completely reverses that. It says that there can be tears up front. In this world, there will be tears, I assure you. But behind the tears, there is hope and joy. It's the complete reversal of the tragic clown. It's the real me. Hope behind the tears because I have life in Christ. My plea is that each one of us might truly be able to say that that is me as well. That is the offer of the gospel.